HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Greenhorn Radio is brought to you by Hearst Ranch. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. Greenhorns, this is Severin with Greenhorns Radio, and I am here today in Hudson Valley on the phone, glad, glad to be on the radio once again, and this time joined by Tanya Tolchin. She's a urban farmer in, well, near Washington, D.C. Hi, Tanya. How are you doing? Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm super glad, but you're not, you're not in the um, political district of D.C. You're outside a little bit. Yeah, we're actually in Prince George's County, about 20 miles outside D.C. It's fairly rural here. We're on the edge. Oh, so you're on the you're on the ruraler side. You're not you're not actually an urban farmer, right? Maybe you could describe your operation for us. Sure. So um, we are a primarily marketing through a CSA, and we deliver to Capitol Hill and some of our neighbors around the farm also pick up here. We um, have about seven acres here on our farm, and then we farm about five or six other fields in the community. We were formally certified organic. We've moved into being certified naturally grown now. And um, we market, I would say, about 90% to the CSA, and then we have some relationships with chefs and do occasional farmer's markets at this point. And was this was this your um, is this your first career? Well, I guess yes and no. We began working on farms shortly after college, and then I actually moved to D.C. and worked in the environmental movement. I worked for the Sierra Club for ten years uh, as a lobbyist, a national organizer, and during that time, my husband and I kept our day jobs, and moved out and started this farm, which is now more of a full-time operation. So all along this was burbling in the back, but you were learning a lot of skills, I'm sure, that are relevant to farming. Could you maybe, can you talk about how um, being an organizer for Sierra Club might have uh, informed some of your work today or, or how those worlds uh, interact? 
Sure. Well, I guess the farming actually started first. I worked on some farms when I was in college, and I think we, um, after graduating college, the idea of starting a farm was something that was exactly sort of in the background for some time. Um, as, As I'm sure you know and have heard from many others, starting a farm from scratch when you haven't inherited it from your parents is fairly daunting. So we sort of took the, I think, a slow road into it. Definitely the values overlap um, quite directly with my work at Sierra Club. My concerns for protecting the environment and for having, um, encouraging, I guess, community involvement in shaping our world are both certainly relevant and um, forefront to the Sierra Club work and the farming work. I was interested in doing more hands-on work um, getting out of the office and sort of um, returning to the farm work, and it took us a little while to figure out how to do that. So in a sense, the Sierra Club was your off-farm job as you built up the equity and experience and um, stability, and it sounds like also family to go along with that. Exactly, yeah. I think Exactly, yeah. Not growing up on a farm... We had both, my husband and I had both interned on farms and, you know, done, done a fair amount of farm work. We knew that we liked the work, but I think we were a little cautious about jumping into it entirely. Um, we had sort of considered options of moving much further out where we could buy a farm and try to jump in as full-time farmers right off. But we decided that it would make more sense to make sure that we really want to be farmers. It's, you know, it takes, I think, a few years for many, some, you know, the novelty wears off, and I think we were, we were cautious. Um, but exactly, we were able to both keep our jobs in the city, and I think it turned out to be a really nice balance at times when we really could appreciate going into the office and, you know, having an air-conditioned environment and, you know, a quiet place to work, and um, then the farm work, which provided such a complete contrast to that being, you know, all physical and outside. So I think the two the two actually worked together for us quite well for a while. Well, and so many young farmers have an off-farm job, and one of the things I've heard most frequently among kind of service providers is that they're happy to they're happy to be the off-farm job for farmers. They feel like it as as um, as a support organization for farmers to have actual farmers on staff adds value to their service. And, yeah, I think um, that, but it also it also they can provide the kind of flexibility that farmers need in their lives, and and it's not always a two way street. So it's it's a it's a tricky thing to navigate. But if you do it right, it seems like it's a pretty core contributor to the ultimate success of that career in that farm and that person's sanity. Also, right, right. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think you know I think for many of us having. Um, you know, the dual, the dual lives can, can work really well. I mean, sometimes there are certainly times when, you know, they'll be, feel like they're in direct contrast to each other and in direct conflict, I guess, if it's, you know, there's something you really need to get done on the farm and, and you're off the farm. That's, that's difficult, but, but generally I think that could work really well for, for many young farmers. I agree. And also I think it, you know, it gave me a reality base to um, that probably helped me to be a better organizer and a better lobbyist. It certainly... Um, being a you know being a farmer and doing that kind of real work is always 
that provides good insight, especially when you're working with people around the country, many of which do all kinds of work, including farming. So, Well, that's one of the things, actually, I've been thinking about a lot, um, especially since we have a dairy cow now on the farm, is every morning I have kind of 40 minutes of quiet thinking time um, that my colleagues who go straight to, into email, and I also used to be an early morning emailer, um, are denied, and that, you know, while farming may indenture you to a place and to animal chores and to lifelong poverty in some, well, not necessarily, but it's some somewhat uh, constrained in those regards, uh, it does give you your mind for you're free. And I think that that, in fact, would complement a lot of different uh, outer lives. And uh, but But the question that I had for you also has to do with the the different locus for activism. So obviously if you're in the Sierra Club, you're working on conservation issues and climate change and um, tell us what is what is compelling from a environmentalist perspective about farming? Well I think I began my I think some of my earliest farming motivations are actually still my primary motivations, which um, I think I began I began farming by learning some basic, I think, principles of both ecology but also food justice issues, learning that um, the, the world, agri- just, you know, all the things that are wrong with the world agriculture system that, um, you know, our beef production contributes to people being pushed off of their land and, um, you know, not being able to grow the crops that they need in Latin America and in Africa and looking at, I guess, what I think was some of my earliest motivations was looking at the world food systems and all of the many things that are wrong and then organic farming seeming to fall into place as offering so many solutions, not always the big scale solutions that we need, but certainly I think the place to start. So the um, I think that was... That was sort of my initial motivation. And then learning also that farming, I think, is such a great way to connect neighbors together to start working on solutions locally in communities. I think farms are, you know, can provide a great catalyst for people who are like-minded to come together and share experiences and then do other things in their communities to move their communities forward. So in that sense, agriculture or farming becomes the, like the kitchen, and everybody hangs out there, and then there's other things that they do, but that it is a binding and a glue and a, and a certain shared experience that yeah. is useful for, other, useful for other projects as well. I think that's right. I think anytime folks get together in their community and, you know, find some common ground, there'll be you know, it's easy then to, to take on other projects together and find... I think that's true also. And, and with Greenhorn's work, you know, um, we're organizing all these events. And, you know, today there's one in the Pioneer Valley, and then on Sunday there's one in Boston. And, you know, there, there are kind of a lot of them. But each time it's um, a kind of a core group of collaborators, many of whom haven't worked together before. And... Uh, one thing that we notice is that once they've worked together um, one time and have succeeded in navigating the vagaries of, you know, working with strangers and pulling it all off and no budget and a lot of logistics, 
um, it kind of makes it much easier for that synapse to fire again. And in the same way, you know, this abstract of community, the concept of community, uh, becomes very real and very tangible when it's, it's the phone calls and conversations and meetings and who's cleaning this and who's picking that up and when are we doing the PR and all those things. And that once you get that going, it takes a, you know, it takes a little while to get it going, but that it, it just keeps building once it's initiated. And somehow that kind of successional quality of, of, rela- of relationships and of then the broader kind of community uh, wasn't super apparent to me at first, but as through this work of, of community organizing, I feel like it's become so um, such a natural pattern and so similar in a lot of ways to the way that farmers markets work, to the way that farm business successions work, to the way that you know campaigns work. I think it's um, a very similar kind of a system. Yeah, I think that makes sense, and I think I saw also similarly many times with Sierra Club groups, and I think in my experience, too, success, even even small success, is really addictive. People get so excited and, and love it and, and want to succeed again. I think, you know, when you manage your first media hit, small or large, or have an, you know, have an event where more people turn out than you expected, anything like that, it's really fun, and, and people, I think, naturally might, want, you know, want more, might find that they especially when they've exceeded their expectations, which happens in community organizing. Yeah, it's fun to sing in a choir. Yeah. And I saw Um, your posters for your events. They look amazing. I really like like how they look. Looks like you're doing great things around the country. Yeah, it was uh, funny. um, We did all these panels, and the farmer's never talking straight into the microphone, and they're like, you've got to get up there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This this, is weird. We're, if we're going to be spokespeople for our for our for our work, then we have to talk into the microphone. Right. Um, you don't seem to have a problem doing that. Let's talk about your writing career and and how the communication uh, part of your personhood is continuing to exist and flourish in the context of farming. Well, thanks. That's sort of it's sort of actually my very it's sort of my very new goal to try to put my writing more on the forefront. I think that I've had a long time writing aspirations and I've um, managed to put many things first and certainly starting a farm is, you know, one of the biggest projects one can take on, I think, in life. Um, starting starting a family as well, but I also spent years um, in my Sierra Club work very engrossed in, in many long hours and I think that I was under the impression when I finished college that life skills are, you know, so are are so important for writers as they are. But um, but you know, in that way, I think sort of put it on the back burner. And uh, I am just very, I'm very excited about um, trying to prioritize writing now and seeing seeing what I can do with it. And I'm ex- just kind of like experimenting in different ways and having a good time level. with it. Oh, so sorry. What is what does that look like? Um, I was talking to Kristen Kimball about her kind of writing pattern, uh-huh. and you know the, pra- the, the practical person in me who was managing a lot of different things. So I was like, well, when do you write? Is it in the morning? Is it in the evening? Like before chores? Um, when do you write? Well, for me, I guess my you know right now I have two very young children, so my farm role is uh, is um, 
I'm more on the, much more on the sidelines of the farm. My husband is doing much more of the farm work, and I'm taking care of the children much more. So what I'm finding now is um, my, I have a 16-month-old and a, and a new 4-year-old that with a small little netbook, I'm just finding moments when they are finally engaged in play together or um, exploring together that I can sort of pull that out outside or wherever I am, little little quick bit of writing, and I'm not, um, it's not something that I'm taking the, um, you know, that I have a lot of time for in revision, but it's sort of um, this fast type of writing, which I think is kind of the way people are writing nowadays more anyway in the blogging world seems to, seems to fit. If I have 30 minutes, I can write something fast. Um, and blogging and I, is your format. Sorry? Is blogging your primary format, or are you publishing essays, or are you working on a book? Yeah, I guess right now I'm mostly just doing some some blogging, doing um, submitting some writing here and there. I'm trying just I'm trying various things. I have a children's farm story that I'm pitching around right now, and some poetry. So I'm a little bit um, all over the map right now. I think that I'll probably focus in the next couple of years, but it's, I'm enjoying just experimenting right now. Well, there certainly are wonderful classic children's books about farming, and it would be great for there um, to be some new, some new parables in the mix. And, you know, something like a you know, young woman farmer on her iPhone I think would make a great protagonist. I agree. I'm so tired of the cranky old man farmer character. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely need to get get new figures in the in that the pantheon. Scene. Totally. And what's going on? What's going on in DC? Um obviously they're not passing any uh federal uh climate change prevention uh legislation. But what what's the food scene like and and is the food scene infecting the policy scene is my my hope. You know, I think it is, and, and we're sort of in a unique position for that, which um, our CSA delivers pretty much to Capitol Hill. And over the years, we've had, we've had many members who are working for key agricultural senators or working for USDA or the Washington Post and kind of, you know, joining our farm but also watching national agricultural policy. So it's kind of an, it's kind of an interesting connection. I want to um, talk to more of our members who are, who are, you know, in that linkage. I think the food movement in D.C. is probably much like what you're seeing around the country. There's definitely significant increased interest in the past five years or so in terms of chefs putting, wanting to put local foods on the menu. Um, many, many new farmer's markets, of course. I'm starting to wonder if there are too many farmer's markets. I think that they've certainly grown faster than farms have grown, although there are some new farms around that now um, it's very hard for market masters to find farmers to fill their markets, which I think is sort of a new problem and may, you know, we'll see how it sort of shakes out. I think there's a lot more options for people for finding local food, which is great. Um, Our CSA didn't fill up as quickly this year, and I think that might be a little bit because there was just, you know, there are just so many more options than there were a few years ago. So we have to, I think, probably figure out how to, you know, how to adjust and meet the needs as they change. 
Well, but it generally, it's all like I think very positive, or not reliable, or predictable by any means. And you know, like two years ago, there was waiting lists on every CSA, and then some CSAs saw a drop off, some saw it keep going. Some farmers markets felt like they had a harder time because home delivery came into their place. And mm-hmm. I, from a from a from a business perspective, it does. You know, even though you'll think, oh, sure, bet if I'm selling for five dollars a dozen really amazing eggs, pasture-raised, you know, all, all organic grain, you know, there's never going to be too much of that. Well, you know, a lot of other people might be thinking the same thing. Right. It does, um, it does seem like the, the, the market research is, is, is difficult to do and, and, and still very, very critical. So you I guys are feeling right. like 90% CSA. Yeah, then and then, that, sorry. No, go for it. Yeah, and then I think about I think the last bit is just selling to chefs here and there. We have a couple of um a couple of very supportive chefs and caterers who will, you know, buy from us almost whenever we offer, which is really nice. And so but you're keeping them as the people that you offer to them only when you've got something you can't move through a more reliable channel. Is that what you would suggest? Yeah, I think that's 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 sort of what we do with our yeah, with our with our chefs. We tend to work with them a little bit. Um, off season, like right now, we we still haven't started our CSA. We do next week, so we're selling some to chefs now. And then we also have excess flowers often, so we do a few weddings and offer some flowers to event coordinators when we have when we have extra. Um, and we might, you know, we might find the need to diversify a little bit more. I'm wondering if the CSA bubble is somewhat you know, has peaked or, you know, what exactly we'll see with CSA. But I think it's fairly easy, at least in our area, we have such a huge market with D.C., it's fairly easy for us to make adjustments to join a market if we need to. We've just, so far we've tried to keep things very simple, just one CSA drop-off and just pick up on our porch um, because we found when we did, you know, anytime you complicate things on a farm, it just makes everything so much harder. Yeah, well, and that's so funny. Um, I work with a restaurant myself, and you know, when you have the farm set of ideas, and when the day, when the day of this is, and when the day of that is, and when the slaughterhouse is open, and and the restaurant set of ideas, and the transportation set of ideas, you know, it quite quickly becomes um, a negotiation when really um, your your primary client is actually you know nature and the, the needs of the crops. So. Um, Putting in too many more clients into that equation can mess up mess up the soup. Right, that makes sense. Or yeah. too many cross metaphors also can have that same effect. Um, so if people are in the D.C. area and they're wanting to plug into the local farm scene, where would you suggest that they go hang out? Or what are some fabulous uh, resources, events, networks that exist down there that um, maybe people who are from D.C. but moved away and want to kind of re-engage. Where would you suggest that they start out? Well, I think the um, Future Harvest CASA organization, that's the sustainable farm organization for Virginia, Maryland, D.C., is definitely growing. It's not strictly organic. It's organic and sustainable farmers together. Um, it seems to have quite a you know, quite a membership of non-farmers as well. And I think that organization is, you know, is on the growing track. The Maryland Organic Food and Farming Organization, MAFA, um, is smaller, just sort of a meeting a year. 
but also what really welcomes quite a bit more membership from um, from non-farmers who are interested in supporting. And that group has been growing at our meetings some, but we'd certainly love to have have more. Um, I think that the um, I, mean, I think if you're in DC, I'm actually I actually don't get into DC as much anymore. But there's um, definitely uh, organizations and groups that are supporting local food. The Dupont Circle Farmers Market has long been, I guess, one of the strongest DC markets, and it's probably the place to go to ask around and find find folks to talk to and work with. So show up in those places, people. And and Tanya, I thank you so much for coming on the show. I thank you so much for your exemplary, um, mature approach, slow the slow crescendo into farming. Um, any 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 guidance you might want to give to people who are finding themselves kind of slowly transitioning out and moving into you know, from professional um, into more farm and family. Uh, yeah, I guess I would say, um, you know, like anything, do a lot of research. I think there are so many more options all the time growing since, you know, the local food movement has been exploding. There are, I think, increased organizations, churches, schools, synagogues that want to start farms, um, or and there's there's rental opportunities. I think the, I guess sort of the old-fashioned model of that you have to go out and b- find the money to afford an entire farm with all the land you need, um, is you know is an extremely high bar for many people. And there, I just you know I guess it's important to realize there's a lot of other options, but it takes you know it takes homework and connecting with people to find out about them. But um, I hopefully folks can find can find a fit. Um, even if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't mean a huge, the huge investment that buying a farm might be. So, find a fit in terms of the balance. Find a fit in terms of the land. Find the fit in terms of the partner who wants to do the tractor work. Right. Can you carry the mortgage, or wants to carry the mortgage while you do the tractor work. All these things and more are yours if you join us in agriculture. Um, thank you so much to you, Tanya, and and thank you to all our listeners. Um, for your interest and for your, well, hopefully you'll start farming soon too. Um, this is Severin with Greenhorn. We are uh, in the Hudson Valley tonight in Amherst, Massachusetts, a mixer for young farmers. Uh, elderflower bike ride on Sunday. Events all the time and, and lots to do for young farmers online and in person uh, in perpetuity. All the best. Bye-bye. Thank you. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. This week, I came across a new website from the American Meat Institute and the American Meat Scientists Association. It's called www.meatmythcrushers.com. It is purports to be addressing consumer concerns about additives such as sodium nitrates in your, um, you know, ham and turkey roll and whatever, and animal welfare and food safety. I noticed as I went through the uh, Meat Myth Crushers website, however, that it did not address anything like uh, subtherapeutic uh, antibiotic use in the meat chain. So um, I'm not sure how many myths they intend to crush. But, you know, as I say, always say, 
it's good to know what the opposition is thinking. And if you want to be fair about any uh, issues around the food scene, it's wise to keep up with their press as well as ours. That's it for Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. There's no problem that Dave Arnold can't solve on his show, Cooking Issues. Take a little listen. So Naveen writes in and says, Hi Dave, I'm fascinated by chocolate, especially the transformation from the bitter seeds of the cacao tree uh, to a tasty chocolate bar. That is a, a, a very interesting transformation. Are there any other foods that undergo a similar set of steps, fermentation, roasting, grinding? Also, do you know of any other tropical fruit seeds that could become delicious through such a process? Thanks, Naveen. That's an interesting question. I mean, obviously coffee, right? Coffee goes through uh, you know, a similar, uh, similar set of procedures, uh, quite literally, uh, fermentation, Drying, roasting, grinding, uh, brewing, um, and uh, vanilla goes through picking, uh, fermentation. Right, it's dipped in usually in boiling water, uh, and then wilted, and then fermented. So it's similar, and then I guess it can be ground to form a paste. But vanilla doesn't taste like vanilla until it goes through its its uh, its paces um, to be fermented. In fact, the vanilla that's uncured is called red vanilla. You can get it. Uh, it's interesting. If you like what you hear, you can hear a new show every Tuesday at noon on the Heritage Radio Network, or subscribe to the podcast, or check out the archives on our website.